is my ongoing goal to be able to support you as the very best way that I can. And in order to do that, I really need to get to know you a little bit better, what your personal needs are for supporting you as a parent on this journey of children with autism and with your child, what their needs are and what you would like to help them most with. Because there may be many things, but there's usually a few top pieces that are very, very important to you that you know your child is really struggling with and you would like help with. And so in order to find out how I can support you best, I have created a short quiz. It's at naturallyrecoveringautism.com forward slash quiz. And if you uh, take that short quiz, you'll be able to give me some information and I'll get back with to you with some results and how I can direct you to the resources that I feel would help you best right now for where you are on this journey and for what you need for your particular specific child's needs. So I hope it's helpful. Again, go to naturallyrecoveringautism.com forward slash quiz. This is Karen Thomas from naturallyhealingautism.com, and um, we are being recorded. So um, today our very, very special guest is Dr. Fran Kendall. And Dr. Kendall, I'm going to go ahead and uh, read a little bit off of your bio so our listeners are a bit familiar with your background and and, then what you do. Um, Dr. Kendall is a super sub-specialist, Harvard-trained physician with a 25-plus year career pioneering and specializing in metabolic, mitochondrial, and inherited disorders. Many of her patients also have autism, Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome, and hypermobility. To Dr. Kendall's knowledge, she has the only independent, independent genetic practice focused on these disorders in the world. Her practice, VMP, stands for Virtual Medical Practice and was born of the need to enable people worldwide access to complex care when no such care exists locally. About 80% of the practice is seeing patients in their offices at the VMP Genetics Clinic, while 20% are remote, reaching from Russia to South Africa to China. Dr. Kendall is a board-certified clinical biochemical geneticist that founded the very first clinical mitochondrial disease clinic in the U.S., sits on the medical advisory board of the National Foundation MitoAction.org, and is one of the specialists chosen by the United Mitochondrial Disease Foundation to be the regional medical representative. Wow, and you've written chapters on these disorders for medical texts and then on Fox News, et cetera. There's a lot. A lot here, and um, Dr. Kendall, again, um, thank you so much for, for giving some of your, I know, very precious time to be here today. Um, I, I would love to just um, let you kind of just, you know, feel free to, to you know, explain a little bit, especially to our listeners, listeners, because some of them don't even know what mitochondria is. So starting from almost scratch, like, okay, what is it, how it affects especially children on the autism spectrum, and then also things that um, that you've been successful finding um, that you can do for it. Okay. Um, first, thanks so much for the opportunity to speak to you today, um, and it is my um, great pleasure to do so. So um, as, um, as Karen indicated, I, I am a biochemical geneticist, and I um, am a mitochondrial disease expert. So the mitochondria, we'll start with a, an explanation of um, them in general and then segue into uh, mitochondrial disease specifically. So for those of you who recall your biology, 
The mitochondria are the batteries or the powerhouses of our body cells. Now, remember that our cells are the smallest functioning unit of our body. Um, cells together, many cells together make up tissues and sheets of tissues, just like sheets of tissues in a, um, in a Kleenex box, um, make up our organs and, of course, our entire body. Um, so again, cells are the smallest functioning unit of our body, and the powerhouses of those cells are known as mitochondria. So they are, um, uh, they appear uh, in, in appearance, they look like kidney beans, and they have an outer membrane and an inner membrane. And embedded within the inner membrane are biochemical pathways that generate energy. So our body takes in food, as we, we all know, and we digest it and, and break it down in our digestive system. And then um, within our body cells, the food is, is chopped into little small chemical um, packets, which then, along with oxygen and phosphate, get shunted into our mitochondria to get converted into something known as ATP. So ATP is adenosine triphosphate, but ATP um, is again, it's like a unit. It's a unit of energy, and you can a good analogy is a battery. So that ATP is then shunted out of the mitochondria around the cell to complete any of its its functions. So mitochondrial disease are diseases, and it's an umbrella heading because there's many subtypes under that umbrella heading. Um, they are diseases that affect the body's ability to adequately produce that energy. So if the body does not adequately produce energy, um, the body systems that are most affected are the brain and the central nervous system, the heart, the muscle, kidneys, and liver. Um, and so in the pediatric population, most uh, affected individuals will have a host of neurological problems primarily, things like developmental delays, muscle weakness, and low tone. Um, and included in those developmental issues can um, certainly be autism and the autism spectrum problems. Um, you can, these kids can certainly have additional um, issues to include GI problems ranging from constipation to severe GI dysmotility um, to um, things with uh, autonomic dysfunction where they have problems regulating their body temperature and heart rate and blood pressure uh, and, and again, a number of other issues. So, and adults will often present with things like exercise intolerance and, um, and weakness. Um, they can certainly have some of the other problems as well, but a lot of the neurological complications in mitochondrial disease are really linked and found specifically in children. So as I mentioned, it's a very broad spectrum group of, of problems that affect the mitochondria's ability to produce energy. Now, uh, an important thing to keep in mind as far as the mitochondria and their functionality is that they are regulated by 1,500 different genes. Now, if um, anybody in the audience knows much about genes and genetics, um, what they know is that most often you have one gene that, if it's altered, produces a disease like cystic fibrosis or sickle cell anemia. Um, so the fact that there are 1,500 different genes that regulate mitochondrial functioning um, certainly indicates that it's a very complicated group of diseases. So. Having said that, 
when children or adults present with a number of the clinical symptoms that can be seen with mitochondrial disease. Then we have to um, undergo a, a complex evaluation to determine whether or not, indeed, they, they have that disorder or not. Now, um, specifically in regards to the autism population, I just want to digress for a few minutes to talk about some of the data that's associated with the link between mitochondrial disease and autism, and some of the um, clinical features that that um, that the ASD kids will often have in addition to their autism features that may be a clue and a cue that they have mitochondrial disease um, and that it is warranted for them to be investigated. So. Um, the kids, uh, it would be the data, some of the first studies that showed some links with autism were reported back in 2005 and 2007 by a group in Portugal. Um, and that group showed that about, in their study, between 4 and 7% of the ASD population that they um, evaluated were determined to have mitochondrial disease as the ultimate cause for their problems. And we certainly have seen other case reports as well that show that there's there's a link. And then one of the more recent studies was in um, the Journal of the American Medical Association in November 2010, where a group out in California, I believe it was UC Davis, um, where they um, they looked at a group of they looked at a a group of um, of autism patients and had them undergo a number of studies looking for association and, and signs of mitochondrial dysfunction. And they found that about 60% of the kids had some signs that their mitochondria might not be working as well as they should. What they did not determine in that study was um, how many of those children ultimately were determined to have a true gene mutation that indicated that they indeed their primary problem was a mitochondrial disease um, with autism and autism features as a secondary problem. So there's some of the um, the initial studies, and, and uh, one of my colleagues, Dr. Richard Fry, who um, who works in both autism and mitochondrial disease in terms of research, uh, Richard has shown. Um, in some of his data, that when he's looked at certain autism uh, populations, he's found that a gene mutation in about 25% of those those kids, and that was a study he did a few years ago. So his data may be updated. I just haven't uh, spoken to Richard about it recently. Um, so clearly, there um, there's been a number of studies that have shown that a, a certain percentage of of children with autism do have mitochondrial um, disease as a primary cause for their problems. Now, um, we we of course only know that after they're investigated. So how do we um, how do we earmark those individuals that are more likely than not to be determined to have uh, a mitochondrial disease? as opposed um, to something else um, as a cause for their problem. So, again, a couple of studies that have shown some of the clinical features that folks have seen most consistently, and I, I as well see this in my patient population, um, 
that are, are red flags for mitochondrial disease in the ASD population are um, other neurological findings such as hypotonia or low muscle tone. Certainly seizures um, are another red flag. Um, these kids will often have GI problems, and that can be very variable. That can range from some inflammatory bowel disease type of features to um, constipation and sometimes even more significant dysmotility of their gut, meaning that they end up with feeding tubes and, and things of that nature. Uh, these kids often deal with um, considerable fatigue, so uh, they prefer to, to um, engage in quiet activities as opposed to running around. Um, and then autonomic dysfunction is another finding that we see um, as a kind of a comorbid problem in the ASD population. And again, the autonomic nervous system is that part of the central nervous system that regulates heart rate, blood pressure, and temperature. Um, and so a lot of these kids will um, overheat easily in the warm weather months. Um, sometimes they'll get very cold um, and colder in, um, in, in cold climates, colder than you would expect them to be. Um, and sometimes they have heart rate and blood pressure issues. So, again, in kind of a summation of that, that digression before I talk a little bit about the investigation and what we need to do to determine if somebody has mitochondrial disease, um, clearly there's been a number of studies over the last decade plus that have shown a link between autism and mitochondrial disease. And, and of course, those of us in the field have certainly noticed that trend. So long before the studies came out as a mitochondrial disease expert for over 20 years, I certainly noticed that a number of um, of children would have um, would that were diagnosed with mitochondrial disease would have uh, autism or autistic like features, um, and, and again, some of the problems that that are seen more readily in that population are things like seizures, hypotonia, GI issues, fatigability, um, and autonomic dysfunction. So. So once we've earmarked an individual um, for the possibility of mitochondrial disease, um, what, what do we have to do to confirm that diagnosis? Well, unfortunately, it's, it's complicated, um, and it's not a simple test. So unlike something like Fragile X, where you do the test and you look at the Fragile X gene, someone either has it or doesn't. But mitochondrial disease is a lot more complicated, and we often are... are required to look at multiple parameters and do multiple studies to make a diagnosis or to come close to a diagnosis of mitochondrial disease in a given patient. So we have a number of tiers of studies we, we um, and parameters we look at. Of course, clinical features are, are one, uh, radiographic findings. Um, some patients with mitochondrial disease have very distinctive brain MRI changes. Um, so if we find those, then, of course, that's suggestive of, of this disease group. Then we have what I refer to as biomarker and biochemical studies. So we do a number of blood and urine studies to look for markers that are out of whack, that are reflective of poor energy production in tissue, in various tissues. So certainly, if the liver is affected, you'll see elevated liver function tests. If muscle is affected, you'll often see elevated lactate levels. Um, you'll see elevated CPK, which is a muscle enzyme. These patients can often have low carnitine levels. Um, 
and sometimes low vitamin D levels. So we look at a bunch of blood and urine studies, again, looking for markers that are consistently seen and are abnormal over and over again in the mitochondrial population. So that's the first step, but that, that none of that testing is definitively diagnostic, but it does help us if it's positive. And about 50% of people, some of those studies will be positive. In the autism community, um, the most commonly abnormal studies are lactate, which is often elevated, and carnitine, which will be low. Um, the next kind of tier of testing we have available to us, um, or tiers, are genetic testing, and then um, and then functional testing, which is um, unfortunately is invasive testing and is looking at that biochemical pathway inside the mitochondria that I first started talking about, that electron transport chain that generates um, ATP. So as far as the genetic testing goes, that's gotten much, much better over recent years. Um, about 10 years ago, we could detect about 10% maybe 15% of the gene mutations in mitochondrial disease patients. That's now about 50 to 60%. Um, so it's much better, but it's not 100%. So there's a number of different panels of, of mitochondrial genes that we can look at. Um, some of us will, will, when we're investigating somebody for mitochondrial disease or um, other neurodevelopmental problems, um, we will use some, sometimes use these mitochondrial gene panels, and other times we will use more advanced genomics that look at far more genes, and, and some of that testing is known as, as whole exome sequencing. Um, and what happens sometimes when we use the whole exome sequencing, the advantage of using that is sometimes we will identify other non-mitochondrial genes that perhaps are the cause for a given child's problems. And I just got a exome result back yesterday on a patient who came to me uh, with autism and concerns about mitochondrial disease, and he um, turned out to have a neurodevelopmental gene mutation, um, a brain development gene mutation um, that is known to be associated with autism. So he did not have mitochondrial disease, but, but did have um, an identifiable gene cause for his problems. Um, and then the last type of studies we have are, again, functional studies. Um, the problem with functional studies are that they are invasive, which means, um, you know, it's difficult enough to get blood and urine studies from children, but certainly putting them through skin and muscle biopsies is, is challenging at best and requires um, often sedation, including general anesthesia, to collect those samples. So um, we don't do muscle biopsies as frequently as we did 10, 15 years ago in the evaluation of mitochondrial disease um, for a couple of reasons. Of course, one of them is the invasiveness of the procedure, but the other is because the biopsies are not as clear-cut as we um, as we had hoped. Mean, and what I mean by that is, um, it, unlike a biopsy for a tumor where your doctor will say it's positive or it's negative, meaning you do have cancer or you don't, it's not always that clear cut with the information we get from a muscle biopsy, making it even more doubly and difficult to have a child undergo such a procedure. But if it's determined by the evaluating physician that it is warranted, um, what we do with that muscle tissue is um, several 
fold, we certainly look at the muscle tissue under the microscope and we look at the structure of the mitochondria. Are they an appropriate size? Are they formed normally? Are there extra mitochondria? All of those can be clues to problems with mitochondrial functioning. And then the other important thing we do with the muscle tissue is we measure that enzyme pathway that I've mentioned several times, um, that electron transport chain. So using special instruments known as a spectrophotometer and control samples, we will um, measure the different chemicals in that electron transport chain to see if they are at the levels that are typical um, for normal um, functionality. So if an individual has reduced activity in those enzymes compared to controls, then that could very much be reflective of a mitochondrial disease. So, you know, again, as you can see here and from my discussion, um, it's not an easy diagnosis. It's not like diabetes. You either have high blood sugar or you don't, and you either have diabetes or you don't. Mitochondrial disease is a little bit more challenging because we're required to um, consider multiple tiers of testing before we can come to our conclusion. And even um, after all of that, sometimes it's still not clear. We might have a child who has a lot of the clinical features, um, but when we do all of that testing, maybe we don't find a gene mutation, but we have an elevated lactate on multiple occasions and a low carnitine, um, and we do a biopsy and there's some changes on the muscle structure, but it's not absolute. And so in a case like that, somebody like me who's done this for long enough may say, given his clinical features or her clinical findings, in the light of this testing, we think this is what they have. So again, it's complicated, but um, but certainly um, you need to have somebody who's familiar with the testing and understands the complexities of it if you're going to embark on this type of investigation. So the next questions um, that arise um, with talking about mitochondrial disease and autism or any other genetic disorder and it's um, linked to autism is really why do we do it, and meaning why do we do the investigation, what do we get out of it um, in general, and then specifically what does... Um, what can we do for ASD patients who turn out to have mitochondrial disease? Well, there's a couple of high-level um, implications that I'll talk about first, and then I'll segue into talking specifically about what do we do with the information for um, the autism um, mito population. So the first thing in terms of genetic testing in general is, um, is in regards to um, things like recurrence risk, and implications for other family members. So certainly if a child with autism is found to have um, a gene mutation in a neurodevelopmental gene that's only found in him or her, well then the other siblings and the parents are not at risk for recurrence. Um, but if a child is found to have a, um, a, a mitochondrial gene mutation, and most often in the pediatric population mitochondrial um, gene mutations are inherited in an autosomal recessive fashion, which means both parents are carriers of, of the gene changes. Um, and so, as such, 
their other children, even if not symptomatic, may also be carriers, but the couple themselves are are at a 25% risk for having another child with similar problems. So they're kind of the high-level implications of a genetic diagnosis. I'm also wondering about parents as as a form of almost um, prevention or things to know ahead. Is Is it easy enough for a parent to go ahead and get this is it just blood work for this genetic testing that can tell if there's a mitochondrial, um, you know, weakness or possibilities for things that, that parents could say, you know, you're looking at having children in the future and you say, okay, both of us are carriers. So um, it gets into also that, that gray area now where I live in California where there's, they're mandating vaccinations where somebody could use, use that genetic testing as a, a piece to say, Hey, we're at risk, and um, we don't, you know, we don't feel that it would be safe for a child to have that. I mean, is it something parents could use ahead of time? Well, if 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 your question is about the parents undergoing the genetic testing, mm-hmm. that doesn't really work for a couple of reasons. Um, one is there are certainly sporadic or de novo gene mutations in children, meaning they're not really inherited, even though it's a change in their genetic mm. blueprint. Okay. Um, so that that's that's the the first thing. The second thing is um because mitochondrial disease is an umbrella heading and there's you know again there's 1500 genes that live under that umbrella. That's a lot of genes to evaluate. Um and the problem also is that you know when you're looking at a parent for example, if you and and you're doing it in a proactive way meaning okay these parents don't have kids yet. They're just trying to see what the risks are. Because we find variants, what's referred to as variants of unknown significance all the time in in our genetic blueprint and in the genetic blueprint of patients, it's possible that you would find gene changes in parents and have no idea whether they would actually lead to disease. So it gets really complicated when you're looking at asymptomatic people um, for certain things like this. Now, as time goes on and our databases get stronger and stronger and we have more information, some of this may be um, possible because, of course, they do do um, um, pre-pregnancy screening now for some common things like cystic fibrosis and that type of thing. But the genes have to be, it's usually one gene and the di- the diagnostic rate for mutations in that gene usually is really high. So like for CF, the testing that's available now is it picks up like 99% of the mutations. So you're you're not likely to miss something in a parent in regards to carrier status. Are there any known genetic triggers specifically that you're aware of for um this particular uh type of disease coming on for that leads to autism or it's just a, a again a, a random thing that you find well it, it's mitochondrial disease in in um in general um i mean it's if somebody has a change in one of their their genes that's a hardwired alteration in their body now that doesn't mean that outside environmental factors don't influence the expression of those genes um, and, and that's that's certainly um, known to be the case. And so what I mean by that is people can be born and have reduced energy production, but certain stressors um, that impact their bodies can lead to 
a worsening of the disease or kind of almost an onset of the disease. So it's not uncommon in, in patients with mitochondrial disease to see the onset or the worsening of clinical features surrounding intercurrent illnesses. Um, so I had a patient um, who presented in um, her teenage years, and she had got a very bad flu, and she started to develop weakness after that. Um, and then that weakness became progressive throughout her lifetime until the point when she was in her 30s and 40s, and she, early 40s, and she couldn't, she could no longer lift her children. She couldn't pick them up. Um, mm. So, so there are environmental issues now. Of course, you know, there's in the ASD community, there's always the question about vaccines. Now, vaccines are a stressor to the body that they elicit immune response. That's what they're supposed to do, um, and, but, and, but there's been a lot of discussion about mitochondrial disease and, and whether or not those immunizations can cause the, um, cause the onset of the problems. Now, again, it doesn't cause it, but precipitates some of the symptoms, and, and some groups have, have done some flawed studies, I would say, at best, but they did their best to try to get some data, and and they felt that um, it was the the fever that could be associated with um, immunization that was really the link to precipitating my, the onset of mitochondrial symptoms, and not not the immunization itself. But you know, again, there's there's not that many studies done in the mitochondrial community, um, and that's that was that was one. And like I said, it was a flawed study. I'm not going to get into the details about why it was flawed, but nonetheless, I mean, it, it's you know they did the very best they could with the data they had, but that's that was their conclusion following that study. And it's interesting that you know basically about 50% of evaluations come out positive, where there still could be the um, you know, other all the other signs uh, that you mentioned. And um, so if somebody has, you know, autonomic, you know, dysfunction, uh, temperature dysregulation, um, fatigue, seizures, et cetera, low muscle tone, those can be pretty common. Can we, since, since we might go through all of that testing and find out, well, it didn't come up positive, but you have all the signs, so we really still think that it's there. I'm wondering if if it's easy enough, and in, and I always work with natural solutions. Are there natural, you know, supplementation things? I know supporting the, the gut, of course, and the liver, uh, all of the detoxification issues. Um, could we, if by by working through um, those in someone's systems, working to uh, to heal them up, balance them? Could that um, be the way to uh, best work with this um, naturally, or do you, what do you, do you generally do with these people to, to work with them to help? Well, them? It, it certainly um, a couple of things, and, and that was what I was going to segue into next in terms of the the implications or the treatment and management specifically of mito and, and you know the the mito autism kids. So um it, in part it depends on their their clinical symptoms of course. You know, if somebody has a severe seizure disorder, um you they're going to be treated for that depending on their seizures. I mean, I've I've used um and am using cannabis oil for um CBD oil for a number of these kids um and, and it's it's showing to be helpful in a number of patients 
but nonetheless, you know, uh, the neurologists will use anticonvulsants. So again, it depends on the the severity of the of the problem as to the amount of intervention you need to consider. Now, as far as if somebody has some low tone and maybe some mild autonomic dysfunction and 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 you know ASD features, is there anything that we can utilize that helps their body produce energy more effectively? Well, there are cofactors for that that electron transport chain. Now. Remember, as you know and, and your audience knows, that you know these these supplements that are utilized are utilized for a reason, meaning you know, we need certain things in our diet and in our body because they're cofactors and they help certain enzyme systems and pathways work more appropriately. So there's something referred to as the mitococktail that consists of things like CoQ ten, carnitine, riboflavin. You know, these things are cofactors for that pathway, and they help that pathway um, produce energy more effectively. Now, the studies are are that we have available to date are, are certainly not um, conclusive, meaning that um, all of us in the field certainly recognize that some of our patients seem to respond quite nicely to the cocktail, and others don't seem to at all. Um, and we don't have a really good handle on why that is. I, mean, I have some theories about it, but of course, you know, again, as a community, we don't know why some people respond and others don't. But the bottom line is, is we utilize and you typically trial the cocktail in all patients to see if it does improve them. And again, some people do. Um, about, and, about what levels do you use those, like CoQ10, carnitine, riboflavin? How much is in a cocktail? How much uh, uh, dosages of those are in there? Is it really, really high? Um, well, that's, that, that's, um, they're pharmacological doses. So, uh, so for example, in a 20 kilo child, so that's f like about 45 pounds, um, that child we would typically use, um, about 200 to 400 milligrams of CoQ a day. So that's a pretty big dose of CoQ. Um, most of the, the capsules, for example, are 100 milligrams a day. But um, and and some of these things are weight dependent, um, and then other things there's just maximum doses we use. So like riboflavin or B1, which happens to uh, B2, sorry, happens to be a cofactor for complex one in the energy um, pathway, the electron transport chain. We use a dose of 100 milligrams a day across the board, whether you're a baby or an adult. Um, so it just it just depends on the um, it depends on the supplement. And it also depends in part on the clinician and their experience and and um you know what 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 they use and what they think has been more effective in their patient population mhm mm and is this an ongoing daily supplemental, or do you use the cocktail for a specific a short short period of time? um if somebody truly has mitochondrial disease, it's an ongoing treatment. Now, some people, of course, will, will take it for some period of time um, and say they don't feel like it's helping them, so they'll, they'll discontinue it. But, but treatment is, de is, um, is really recommended for lifetime. Okay, okay, interesting. All right, and um, do you, I know that you have um, uh, some websites and some other places that people could uh, gather some more information on their own if they like. Could, would you, um, uh, you know, share those with our, our listeners? 
Sure. Um, well, two things. One, um, our, our website has a number of my lectures and, and other uh, resources on it, and it's vmpgenetics.com. And so my, my husband keeps that jam-packed full of information. The other thing is we have a, a, a Facebook page uh, with 16 or 17,000 um, fans. And I do um, during the um, – not during the summer because most people are out and about in the summer, but usually from the fall uh, until May I will do at least a, a, once a month a blog. Um, and those blogs are – about some topic in mitochondrial rare disease. And so I've got a number of blogs. For example, I did a three-part series on medical cannabis last year and then updated it um, recently. I think it was in April or May and did an update on the use of medical cannabis in mitochondrial disease specifically. So that's that's been also been a good resource for information um, on various topics. So I'll talk about that. I'll talk about pain management. I will talk about... Um, any number of topics that relate to this patient population. Okay, wonderful. Well, again, thank you so, so much for your time today. Um, this has been extremely helpful for, I'm sure, a lot of people, especially seizures. A lot of people are really searching for what the issue is or the low energy, um, of course, muscle tone, the fatigue, the, all of those issues. So many of our kids have it. We see those problems, but a lot of people don't know to even look into mitochondrial issues and what, what can be done about it. So um, I'm sure that this, uh, this will be very, very helpful for so many people today. And um, again, I, I just want to thank you so much for, for giving us uh, your time because I know you're a very, very busy person. Um, so um, do you have anything else to add um, before, before we finish? I think the only thing I'd like to add, Karen, to that, um, uh, aside from the um, thank you for the opportunity, is uh, is for people to know that, um, it, particularly with the mitochondrial autism kids, the implementation of therapy, the addressing of their problems, the use of protocols for management of sick time and, and avoidance of certain medications um, uh, during surgery and just for routine care is um, has proven to be very helpful and um, to this patient population and and Richard Fry and Dan Rasignal did did um, publish a report to that effect a handful of years ago so I think while I'm not indicating or recommending that every child get worked up for mitochondrial disease. Um, if those red flags do exist, and it is a consideration, um, it's not just an academic pursuit. It has, it has very real implications for a family and for an individual child. So I think um, if there are concerns, uh, certainly I, I think it's well worth a family's um, efforts to investigate it. Right. Yes, absolutely. Um... And um, and my book is about also you know healing the gut, getting the heavy metal detoxification, healing the liver, um, and then uh, you know neural support um, to to you know kind of help those pathways as well. Um, so this is this is right along in those those in, in that information. I mean, so many of these kids just follow in in so many of so many similar patterns, and there are a lot of natural solutions out there. So, um, you know, that's why my my greatest inclination is to just help educate our parents with as much 
much as much positive education as they can get so that they know when they're making decisions that they're making good informed decisions for their children or they know where to go to find um, those answers that they need because sometimes they just say what's going on and nobody knows many many doctors I have found don't don't know so um, sometimes parents have to just really do so much research on their own so um, hopefully this is very helpful to a lot of people today and um, again, it's, this is Karen Thomas with NaturallyHealingAutism.com, and I'm also at Facebook, Naturally Healing Autism. And um, this is Dr. Fran Kendall that has joined us today um, on uh, the geneticist on mitochondrial dysfunction. So again, thank you so much, Dr. Kendall, for um, for sharing your time with us today and your information. You're very welcome. Thank you, Karen. All right. Have a great day. You too. Bye-bye. Bye.